You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com my stuff I know right where everything is What you're calling a mess is my organizational system I just pray Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 7th day of November 2010. I'd like to welcome everyone back to The Corbett Report and invite them, as always, to check into my website, corbettreport.com, where you can find interviews, articles, videos, and previous episodes of this podcast, as well as links to those websites that support The Corbett Report and which The Corbett Report supports. And speaking of supporting those who are supporting The Corbett Report's work, I'd like to draw my attention to several people who I think really need your support because they are helping to support this work and the spreading of this information, which is the absolute primary goal and concern of The Corbett Report. So first I'd like to draw my listeners' attention to a YouTube account by a YouTube user named Sven Von Erik. That's S-V-E-N-V-O-N-E-R-I-C-K. And, of course, check into the documentation list for today's episode to find a direct link to that YouTube user's account. But he seems to have a director account at YouTube.com, meaning that he gets to post very lengthy uh, videos and, in fact, has taken to posting the complete audio of various recent episodes of the Corbett Report podcast, something that uh, I wholeheartedly support and encourage people to do if they're able to, and it makes it for a very valuable resource because that means a lot of YouTubers who might not normally come across the podcast suddenly have access to uh, complete versions of the uh, Corbett Report podcast all in one easy-to-download-and-view-and-listen-to file, so that's very helpful, so please support Sven Von Erich. And along those lines, YouTube user Gray86Fox has also recently posted The Bushes Are Nazis, which was episode 14 of this podcast, as two separate videos on his YouTube account. And our friend Claire Swinney at the Web of Evidence blog, who runs under the YouTube username Web of Evidence, recently posted up episode 40, or a clip from episode 40 of this podcast, Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars, on how unpopular ideas are generally and gradually introduced to the public. And that's, I think, a very valuable and important clip from a very old episode of this podcast. So, again, please support Claire Swinney and all the excellent work she does at the Web of Evidence blog. And, again, please go to all of these different YouTube user accounts and favorite and rate and comment on these videos to help spread the word and to help spread this information further than ever before. And I know there are now close to 20,000 of you out there listening on a weekly basis and many more over a greater period of time. So... I very much hope that uh, we can start to wield some of the power that we have as a group to to bring ideas and attention to these very important topics. So I look forward to your support in those areas. 
I'd also like to direct listeners to some other people who are doing some very valuable work, namely Richard Grove and Lisa, Arpe- Lisa Arbachevsky of TragedyandHope.com, Paul Verge of DivergentFilms.com, and Jan Irvin of GnosticMedia.com, who recently released the first episode of a new video series entitled What You've Been Missing, and episode one is entitled Exposing the Noble Lie. It's available for viewing now on YouTube and blip.tv. So again, please check the documentation list for links to that episode one of What You've Been Missing, which I highly recommend people check out, not only because it helps to highlight some of the work that I've been doing, but a lot of other very important media that's uh, being produced right now. It's a very important, very interesting look at the idea of the noble lie and how how to expose that and how people are exposing that and what it means to expose the noble lie. And it's extremely well-produced and another excellent, excellent piece of media for opening people's minds. So please go to tragedyandhope.com. Please support this work and please become a member of the Tragedy and Hope community, which you can do completely for free at tragedyandhope.com and join in the conversation, the great conversation that's going on now and which is becoming more and more exciting as more and more people add their voices to the mix. Finally this week, I would like to once again wholeheartedly thank those people who have supported the Corbett Report financially, which of course is another important and key step in maintaining this platform and helping to expand it. So I would like to wholeheartedly thank Eric from Canada and Tiro or Tero from Finland, and I'm sorry for undoubtedly pronouncing your name incorrectly, but I'd like to thank both of you for using the donate button on CorbettReport.com to send in a monetary donation. And of course, monetary funds are an unnecessary evil in this day and age, and I do need the support of listeners out there to help keep this podcast growing and expanding. So thank you to Eric and Tiro. And as always, we have a lot of information to cover today, so let's get straight into today's Sunday Update. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with your Sunday update for this 7th day of November 2010. And now, for the real news. In our top story this week, awareness of serious questions about the official government story of 9-11 is rising dramatically as a new advertisement about the mysterious collapse of World Trade Center Building 7 began airing in the New York metropolitan area. I lost my son, my nephew, my uncle, my son, on September 11, 2001. Most people don't know that a third tower fell on September 11. World Trade Center 7, a 47-story skyscraper, was not hit by a plane. Although the official explanation is that fire brought down Building 7. Over 1,200 architects and engineers have looked into the evidence and believe there is more to the story. Bring justice to my son, my uncle, my nephew, my son, and thousands of others who died on September 11. Go to buildingwhat.org. The campaign, promoting the buildingwatt.org website, which gives further information about the evidence for the controlled demolition of Building 7, has been sponsored by a grassroots funding drive promoted by the Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth and other organizations. The ad will be running on CNN, MSNBC, The Comedy Channel, CNBC, VH1, and eight other stations until the 10th of November and will air over 350 times and is projected to reach millions of viewers in the New York area, many of whom have never seen the collapse of Building 7. The campaign is part of a rising tide of interest in the concerns of the 9-11 Truth movement, which coincides with the recent release of thousands of videos of Ground Zero from the National Institute of Standards and Technology, which used the videos in crafting its report on the collapses of the World Trade Center, but which has been held under lock and key away from public scrutiny 
until pried free via a FOIA request from the International Center for 9-11 Studies. Many of the newly released previously secret videos reveal new audio evidence of the explosions at World Trade Center 7 prior to its collapse. activity and sirens and, and um, more smoke rising from the ground, uh, new smoke. So there was some kind of additional explosion, but I don't know what it was. Definitely. NIST cited a lack of audio evidence of explosions at Building 7 as its primary reason for dismissing the voluminous evidence that the building was brought down in a controlled demolition. Now that even more evidence is emerging to show that there is indeed audio evidence of such explosions, and that NIST was the very organization that has been keeping that information secret for the past nine years, it remains to be seen what pressure will be brought, brought to bear for a reinvestigation on the WTC7 collapse. In other news this week, another television advertisement is generating controversy after it was banned from airing on networks like ABC, Andy, and the History Channel. The ad, produced by Citizens Against Government Waste, de deals with the timely issue of increasing U.S. debt and was deemed too controversial by the networks, who are refusing to air it.因为他们都犯同样的错误 <laughs> you can change the future. You have to. Join Citizens Against Government Waste to stop the spending that is bankrupting America. Precisely what is controversial about the commercial is not entirely clear, especially since it is well known that the U.S. national debt is currently almost $14 trillion, a number almost equal to the gross domestic pr product of the country, and that 20% of that debt is currently held by China. Perhaps the ad advertisement can be construed as controversial insofar as it fails to take into account newly released information from the Federal Reserve itself, which shows that in engaging in its now infamous second round of quantitative easing to buy over $700 billion in Treasury securities over the next six months, the Federal Reserve will in fact overtake China to become the largest holder of U.S. debt by the end of this month. In other economic news, newly released data indicates that over 42 million Americans are now relying on government-issued food stamps to buy basic groceries. Recent survey data shows that 28% of American households have at least one member who is looking for a full-time job. The former CEO of America's 10th largest bank went on record earlier this month to declare that the bankruptcy of the U.S. government is now a mathematical certainty. 
Credit bureaus are implementing new invasive ways to spy on the personal financial records of potential loan recipients, including ways to probe utility and rent payment history, estimate personal income, gauge home value, and other tangential financial data. The global economic meltdown is continuing apace as the UK begins its austerity-driven asset fire sale by selling a 30-year concession to two Canadian pension funds to operate the rail link between London and the Channel Tunnel. And the National Inflation Association has released alarming new inflation estimates because of the devaluation of the dollar caused by the Federal Reserve's quantitative easing, including estimates of $23 loaves of bread, $45 orange juice cartons, $15 candy bars, and over $55 for slave-made Chinese Walmart t-shirts. Meanwhile, key current and former officials of the privately owned Central Bank of the United States, the Federal Reserve, are scrambling to allay global alarm over the crumbling economy and the disastrous decision of the Fed to devalue the ailing U.S. dollar even further. In the face of economic and financial analysts of every conceivable stripe, Bernanke went out of his way to defend this so-called QE2 by arguing the semantics that the Fed is not creating inflation, but fighting disinflation. We are not in the business of trying to create inflation, he said at a conference held on Jekyll Island, the very spot where banksters met in complete secrecy 100 years ago to hatch their plans for a privately controlled bank through which they could control the American economy. Our purpose is to provide some additional stimulus to help the economic recovery and to avoid, potentially, additional disinflation. Speaking at the same conference, which many analysts are pointing out is a type of morbid 100-year birthday party to celebrate the realization of the original dream of the banksters who created the privately owned Fed, namely that a tiny group of unimaginably wealthy individuals would be able to steer the economy of America, and indeed the world, into a depression in order to buy up global assets at pennies on the dollar, former Fed chairman Paul Volcker made the laughable assertion that the Federal Reserve is not an abhorrence against nature and the subject of an increasingly virulent revulsion by people of all stripes and persuasions, but in fact a loved and respected institution. The Federal Reserve is respected, and it's respected at a time when respect and trust in all our government institutions is all too rare, he lied to the attendees of the Jekyll Island Conference. It's that respect and that trust that at the end of the day is vital to the acceptance of its independence and to support for its policies. As many analysts are noting, the mendacity of this statement is easily enough verifiable by the fact that the phrase end the Fed, a slogan adopted by the vast majority of the public who do not believe that a privately owned institution should have the power to create money out of thin air and then tax the citizenry for the pleasure of doing so, now returns over 92 million results in Google searches. Earlier this week, longtime Federal Reserve opponent Ron Paul announced that he and his newly elected senator son, Rand Paul, will introduce legislation to end the Fed on their very first day in office of the new congressional term. Well, you know, first of all, we're going to get to the Fed. I know our audience wants to hear about it. You want to talk about it. But I got to congratulate you on Rand Paul. Your son just blew away the competition last night. Uh, any advice? Did you call him up to offer any? Well, he called shortly afterwards. He called awfully early, and he was awfully surprised it was so early. He didn't have his shirt and tie on yet. So, yeah, we talked a little bit, and uh, we're, we're, we're talking about what we might do. One thing he'd like to do is have a joint party on our swearing-in day, which oh. would be uh, beneficial or very nice for both of us. That's, that's, that's kind of nice, but beyond the parties, any yeah. specific advice on how we should govern? 
Well, yes, he, you know, I suggested to him we have a, at least one specific bill that we introduce on the first day that both of us are there, and he says, how about end the Fed? So, uh, end the Fed or honor the Fed, we'll do something with monetary policy right, well, on our first day to, to make a point. Now please go to CorporateReport.com to download episode 160 of the Corporate Report podcast, Who Owns Your Property?, where we explore how governments have tricked us into giving up ownership of our own possessions and look at examples of how an educated and informed public is fighting back. Welcome, my friends, to episode 160 of the Corbett Report, Who Owns Your Property? Now, whereas many of the Corbett Report podcast episodes have somewhat enigmatic titles that deserve explication, it might seem that today's title is quite straightforward and that no further explanation is really needed. But as always, it's extremely important to understand that we're all on the same page with the terms that we are using, because otherwise, if we do not have our definitions down, we are talking at cross-purposes, and ultimately, our communication is of no value. So as ridiculous as it may seem to some, it is important to establish, first of all, what it means when we say property, because property is very much a central concept towards everything that we are doing here at the Corbett Report and everything that the freedom movement in general stands for. Although private property might seem to some on the left side of the fake left-right paradigm to be a delimiting of human freedom, of taking things that belong to the common good and putting them in the hands of private individuals, thus limiting people's freedom, it is in fact quite the opposite. Without private property, there is no possibility for freedom in our society. This is a very detailed, intricate, complex, and very interesting philosophical problem that has been talked about, debated, and parsed for centuries. So suffice it to say, we're not going to get to the very bottom of this today. But I would like to direct listeners to what most people would tend to say is one of the bases for the common understanding of private property as we understand it, exercise it today in our society. And that traces back to the 17th century English philosopher, John Locke. Locke, as I say, was an extremely important person in the history of political philosophy, and one of his most important influences was, of course, on the Declaration of Independence, which is most scholars would trace back to John Locke as a direct influence on that document. And Jefferson was highly influenced by the Second Treatise on Government. In that treatise, John Locke establishes what is today taken to be the basic philosophical argument for private property in our day and age. And I will, of course, provide a link directly to the Second Treatise of Government so you can read it for it yourself in its entirety, specifically Chapter 5 of Property, which deals with exactly what we're talking about today. I will also include uh, a link to the LibriVox recording of that Second Treatise so that you can go and listen to it if you do not have time to go and read it online. Uh, Again, I want to try to make the original document as available to as many people as possible so that you will go back and check the sources because that is, of course, one of the primary reasons for the Corbett Report to direct people back to original source documentation and allowing people to come to their own conclusions. But given that, of course, it is written in quite a learned style that is perhaps not quite palatable to the modern 21st century taste, 
let's, instead of going back to the chapter five and uh, really not doing justice to that, let's, let's take at least a short segment from a Yale University course on the history of political philosophy, which breaks down, I think, quite nicely in a few minutes Locke's basic theory and what underlies the theory of private property. This can be found on iTunes U from Open Yale Courses and is Political Science 114, basically an introduction to political philosophy, and this was recorded in 2006. So let's take a listen to this professor explaining John Locke's theory of property. The core of Locke's theory of natural law in the state of nature is arguably lodged in his account of property. Chapter 5 of the Second Treatise. If you remember anything about Locke after this class, remember Chapter 5. It is, by all accounts, maybe Chapter 19 as well, the theory of revolution, but Chapter 5, the account of property, certainly in many ways one of the most characteristic doctrines of Lockean political thought. Locke's view of human nature is that we are very much the property-acquiring animal. Aristotle had said we were political by nature. Locke says we are property-acquiring beings. Our claims to property derive from our work. The fact that we have expended our labor, our work on something, gives us a title to it. Labor confers value and is the source of all values. The state of nature is a condition, he tells us, of communal ownership, what Karl Marx would have called primitive communism. The state of nature is given to all men in common, Locke says. It only becomes Parts only of it become private property only when we add our labor to something. We read a famous formula in sections 20, from sections 27 and 28. Every man, Locke says, has property in his person. This nobody has any right to but himself. We all, in other words, have a certain, we come into the world with a certain private property, property in our person. No one else has a right to that. The labor of his body, Locke continues, and the work of his hands, we may say, are properly his. For, for labor being the unquestionable property of the laborer, no man but he can have a right to what is once joined to, at least where there is enough as good left in common for others. That labor, Locke says, puts a distinction between him and the common. That added something to them more than nature, the common mother of all, had done, and so they become his private right. So we have moved here in this one paragraph from the state of nature, which he says is common to all, to a condition of rudimentary private property, which we have in our body, our person, which he says also includes uh, the labor of the body and the work of the hands, how we expend our activity. That labor, he says, which puts something between us and the <coughs> common becomes the source 
of ownership of things around us. And that ownership then in turn becomes a right. So they become, he concludes there, his private right, uh, the source of a right to property. The natural law, as, ha as Locke uh, seems to be saying, dictates a right to private property. And it is to secure that right that governments are ultimately established. Now, once again, it is very important that people go and start exploring the Lockean theory of property in greater depth on their own time. And it's a crying shame that we don't have the time to go through and explore that in greater detail. But suffice it to say, we will be coming back to it time and again throughout this podcast because it is so important to understand this concept and all of the various things that go along with it. But certainly, if my listeners picked up anything from that brief excerpt from that Yale course, I would hope that they would have picked up the following. Namely, firstly, that private property is in fact the underlying philosophical basis for all of our rights as human beings, and without private property, we would not have rights. And secondly, that the first form of property which we own and which we are sovereign over and that no outside agent or force wearing whatever badge or whatever helmet or claiming to be part of any fictitious group called the government or the people or the collective will or the proletariat or whatever ideology is in sway and in force at the time can ever abrogate, take over, or seek to infringe upon for any reason whatsoever is our own bodies. We own our bodies, and from that underlying philosophical concept of private property of the body, we can derive all of the forms of private property that we see around us. And it's not to say that this concept is necessarily simple and there are simplistic and childish ways of attempting to counteract it by talking about situations in which someone has mixed their body and their labor with an object in nature to bring it within the realm of private property, but then has not actively participated in keeping that object part of the private sphere. That is to say, perhaps the example of someone taking a piece of land and farming or tilling it or clearing it and thus making it part of their own private property and then letting it regrow into the wild. Well, in that case, there is such thing as re-homesteading and other arcane theories and, and things that have to be taken into account. And again, that's something that you can explore in your own time. But suffice it to say, there is a very important underlying philosophical idea to be had here. And it's extremely important for us, even today, 400 years or so after that was originally written, that this really does apply to our everyday lives. And in order to start exploring that, we're going to take a listen to an absolutely incredible and incredibly important speech by Michael Badnerick. Michael Badnerick, as I'm sure many of my listeners know, was the libertarian presidential candidate back in 2004 and is a man who currently devotes his time to giving eight-hour crash courses on introduction to the United States Constitution, its meaning, its underlying philosophical basis, and how it applies or does not apply in our current world and why it should apply. And people who are interested in that can check out his upcoming lectures or find out more information at constitutionpreservation.org. 
and I would highly suggest people do so. And I'm ashamed to say that I, although it is available online, I have not yet actually listened to the entire eight-hour course, but make no bones about it, I certainly will be doing so, and I certainly hope to have Mr. Badnerick on the program at some point in the future. But right now I'd like to take a listen to an extract from an extremely mind-opening presentation that I get the audio clip from another excellent podcast, which I'm sure many of my listeners are aware of and have followed. But for those who haven't, please check out 9-11 Synchronicity by Richard Andrew Grove, currently of tragedyandhope.com, peacerevolution.org, and of course, What You've Been Missing, which I mentioned in the beginning of today's podcast. And this clip of the Michael Badnerick lecture comes from episode 21 of the 9-11 Synchronicity podcast, Civics, Rights, Privileges, and the Privileged Right, which was released in January of 2008 and is a eight-hour marathon podcast of incredible and incredibly important information. So please go and check that out, as well as checking out the incomplete clip from this presentation, which... Only time constraints prevents me from playing in its entirety, but it is absolutely riveting and very central to the point that we're talking about today. So why don't I shut up and I'll let Michael Badnerick take over with this extremely important clip from his lecture on the Constitution. And this is about rights and privileges as it relates to private property. The very first topic is the difference between rights and privileges. This topic is fundamental to everything else that we are going to learn. That's why I put it first. Everybody's just shown up this morning. The probability that you're going to fall asleep on me in the first 30 minutes is less than you know the probability that you'll be dozing at the end. So if you are going to stay awake for any information, stay awake for this. If you don't understand this, the rest of the class is basically hot air. A right is defined as a power, privilege, faculty, or demand inherent in one person and incident upon another. Generally defined as powers of free action. Something that you have the sovereign authority to do because there is no higher authority to get permission from. There's nobody to ask. You've heard the expression, the buck stops here. That means you're it. You make the final decisions. That's what sovereignty is all about. You are endowed by your creator with certain unalienable rights. You don't have to ask. Now, this is the exact opposite of a privilege. A privilege is defined as a particular and peculiar benefit or advantage enjoyed by a person, company, or class beyond the common advantages of other citizens. A particular right, advantage, exemption, power, franchise, or immunity held by a person or class not generally possessed by others. A temporary authority granted to you by someone of a higher authority. Let me give you an example. If I walk out of the back door of my house and I walk out onto my land, I can walk back and forth, back and forth, back and forth across my land all day long. Do I have to ask anybody for permission? 
No, it is my land. I own the property. And because I own the property, I have a right to do anything I want with that property. And if I want to walk back and forth across it, I will. Now, let us presuppose that you have the property or the land right next door. Let us further presuppose that I want to walk to the store, which is just across your land. Can I walk back and forth, back and forth across your land anytime I want? No. I have to get permission. It is a privilege for me to walk across your land. Why? Because I don't own your land. You own your land. You have complete and total authority to do whatever you want with your land. Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, you may decide to let me walk across your land. We're next door neighbors, we're buddies, we go out, you know, you know, socializing together. So there's no reason that I shouldn't walk across your land. Yes, you may. On Thursday, you may wake up on the wrong side of the bed. You may have had a fight with your significant other. You may just be in a bad mood. You don't have to have a good reason. You just have to have a reason. And you can say, no, you may not walk across my land. You have to walk around. So walking across your land is a privilege granted to me by someone of higher authority, the owner of the property, you. That privilege can be revoked at any time. Yes, you may. No, you may not. Yes, you may. No, you may not. And I have no control over that. One of the fundamental problems in the United States is that the government has convinced us that we have certain privileges granted to us by the government. Excuse me, I have rights endowed to me by my creator. Where does the government get power? We, the people, grant the government privileges. The power comes from us and goes to government not the other way around. Now, there are some important sublayer concepts with rights. One of which is that rights are derived from property. In my example, I can walk back and forth across my property because it's my property. I can do anything I want if I own it. So anytime you get into a dispute as to who's got the right to do this, that, or the other thing, the real question that should be asked is who owns the property? If you can identify the owner of the property, the question answers itself. The owner of the property can do whatever they want. Now, we frequently hear the phrase, constitutional rights. I hate that phrase. Stop using that phrase. Do not say constitutional rights. The reason that I hate that phrase is because constitutional rights sounds like the Constitution grants us rights. If you are granted something, is it a right or a privilege? It's a privilege. It is impossible to grant someone a right. It's a contradiction in terms. It's like a round square. It, it's, it's 
the opposite. Like jumbo shrimp, you just cannot have a right which is granted. Now, there is a second concept that... Um, well, let me, let me continue on this property. You have a right to life. Where does that right to life come from? Well, property. Who owns your body? I hope it's you. What are you if someone else owns your body? You're a slave. So, if, you know, basically, if you are not a slave, then you own your own body. Can you do whatever you want with your body? Yes. Now, is smoking good for you? No, that's pretty much, you know, okay. But if you want to put a cigarette in your mouth and smoke it, it's your body. Do what you want. You know, it's not up to me to tell you what to do with your property. I mean, I don't recommend it. You know, but you're the property owner. Now, John Adams said, the moment the idea is admitted into society that property is not as sacred as the law of God and that there is not a force of law and public justice to protect it, anarchy and tyranny commence. The law of property is the most important law. Period. Even a two-year-old understands property. Mine. Mine. That's mine. They don't understand it well, but they do understand that owning property is important. And as we get older, somehow we lose sight of that fact. We need to be just a little bit more like a two-year-old to go, that's mine. And we have to be willing to defend that property. Somebody jumps into your car and starts driving away, what do you do? Say, oh, gosh, I better call the insurance company. Or do you chase after them and try to get your car back? It's your property. Now, um, most of you do not own half the things that you think that you own. There is a concept known as a lodial title. A lodial title means that you own it. I mean, the way that we think of when we say that you own something. A lodial title is generally referred to when we talk about land. If you own the land in a lodial title, then you genuinely own the land. How many people went to a real estate agent when they bought their house? Okay, when you go to a real estate agent, are you buying property or real estate? There is a difference. When you buy real estate, you purchase everything from the ground up. You own the house, you own the trees, but you do not own the earth that it sits on. Can you go out in your backyard and drill for oil? No. Why? Because there's an ordinance against it? If it's your property, can you do whatever you want with your property? And if I can't drill for oil in my backyard, then apparently I don't own the property. Do you pay property taxes? Why? Who are you paying property taxes to? 
If it's yours, why would you have to give somebody else money? And the truth of the matter is that you do not own the land. You, are, you own the house on top of the land, but you are renting the actual land. Michael Badnerick of constitutionpreservation.org and I'm sure that my well-informed and engaged listeners do not need to be told, but just in case there is anyone out there who doesn't quite get that this is about much more than being able to drill for oil in your backyard, of course, what is being discussed in that clip and in the subsequent uh, part of that lecture, which again, I would exhort you to go and listen to in its entirety, but what is being discussed is of something of much greater importance and much more fundamental in nature, and that is really the ownership of our own property. And if we do own it, then why do we pay taxes on it? Why do we register it? Why do we need licenses from the government to use it? You do not need anyone to grant you permission to exercise a right that is inherent in you as a free human being. So, if we are licensed and permitted to do things with our own property, and if we have to pay taxes and registration fees and other fees to the government for the pleasure of using our own property, do we own it? The answer is obviously a resounding no. Now, this is really only the beginning of the tip of the iceberg, and there is much, much more beneath the surface, and this is an area that is so vast and so mind-boggling that I really don't know how to encapsulate it, so I won't. But for those who listened to this week's midweek bonus episode of the Corbett Report, report episode 159, Bursting Bubbles of Government Deception, you will know just how deep this rabbit hole goes. For those who haven't yet watched this documentary or listened to the audio from episode 159, I would suggest that you do so immediately, because if you thought that Michael Badnerick lecture was amazing, well, the Robert Arthur Menard lecture featured in Bursting Bubbles of Government Deception is equally incredible. And I know I have a rather international audience, so for those listeners who are listening in various countries around the world who think that this is merely an American problem or an American fixation or only has to do with the American Constitution or American jurisprudence, you obviously could not be further from the truth because Robert Arthur Menard, for instance, is based in Canada. There's also a large movement in England devoted to studying these types of issues and many other places around the globe besides because really what many countries around the world have been steeped in through a process that has been gradual but increasingly blatant and in your face over the last few decades, but certainly for been operating for centuries, is the placing of our society into a system of jurisprudence that is not based on natural law, like that from which John Locke derived his idea of the th fundamental basis for private property, nor the common law which is derived from that natural law, but a system of maritime admiralty law which is, well, a world of smoke and mirrors, based on illusions, using words as tools to basically enslave us, and not only to enslave us, but to get us to willingly submit to that enslavement. This is all done through a smoke and mirrors world that has been constructed through legal terms, 
and words that we think we know the definition of, but which we do not. And that is something that the Robert Arthur Menard lecture in Bursting Bubbles of Government Deception brings to the forefront and examines very well from many different aspects. And there are lots of startling pieces in that documentary, so I will let you discover that for yourself. But right now, let's just listen to a very short clip from that documentary in which Mr. Menard is breaking down three of the terms through which governments get us to willingly submit ourselves to subjection to their rule. And that is the words registration, application, submission. My first book was called Registration, Application, Submission means drop them, bend over, and don't expect lube, how the government really gains power. I was angry at the time and big on long titles. <laughs> These three words is how the government has been getting authority over us. Registration, application, submission. All of the power they have over you is because you have put your signature on a document with one or two or three of these words. The word registration. What does it mean? I thought, it, oh, I'm just putting my name down. Nuh-uh. Historically, it goes back hundreds and hundreds of years to an act of a ship's captain signing over his ship and all chattel contents to the harbor master for safekeeping. Chattel contents included the slaves, the condemned, those in debt, anything that could be party to a contract essentially was considered chattel property. Application, oh, and I found this one out, I was like, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm telling. Application, <laughs> application means to beg, to beg, plead, petition, implore, entreat, or request. I was like, beg? I started looking at the assumptions. If you want to look at a word and figure out what this word, what effect this word is going to have on your life, you need more than just the definitions. You need to look at the assumptions that this definition rests upon, and then you need to look at the implications created. The assumptions created by begging. He who begs knows exactly what they're begging for. Well, mind you, in one time in Toronto, I had a woman ask me, can I have anything? But for the most part, someone's begging, they know exactly what they're begging for. They know exactly what they are willing to give up for it. They are acknowledging the authority to grant. Or if it doesn't exist, they're willing to create it through transference. If I ask if you beg me to take your shoe off and scratch your toe for you, maybe then I would have the authority to do that. Prior to, me, prior to you begging me to take your shoe off, I try touching your property, you can kick me in the teeth. We transfer authority if that authority doesn't already exist when we apply. And finally, because you are a human being and no one's ever obliged to beg, it's an entirely voluntary action. You can never claim, oh, they made me apply. No one has ever, ever made you apply for anything. Submission. Submission is their other tricky little definition. It means to agree to bend to another's will or to leave to another's discretion. If you are agreeing to bend to someone's will, you are in contract with them, and again, in order for it to be voluntary or lawful, it has to be voluntary. If you are agreeing to leave something to someone's discretion, in order for you to legally leave something, you must have possession and ownership of it. And again, you're abandoning it, and that's an entirely voluntary action. 
They get all their power when you put your signature, which is evidence of an oath, on a document with the words registration, application, submission. They do it with everything. You want to register your kids, what are you going to do? You're submitting an application for registration. You want to register your vehicle with the motor vehicle branch, you're submitting application for registration. You want to register your real property, submitting application for registration every time. And that's why the lawyers got it. They're, they're in all the power. You came to them and begged. Well, once again, that documentary was produced by ThinkFree at thinkfree.ca, a group of like-minded individuals who are interested in exploring the various ways that not only we have been subjected to the legal authority of various governments and government agencies through trickery based on deceit and fraud and the use of legalese to try to convince us that we somehow are beholden to a government that we ourselves have instituted as part of the social contract. But as you might imagine, this is of course just one flowering of a much broader movement that has numerous different names but is often referred to as the Freeman on the Land movement or the Natural Persons movement or there are many different ways to describe this or to refer to it, each with their own pitfalls. But whatever way you try to describe it, it is, of course, people who are trying to seek freedom. And that's, of course, what Think Free stands for. So it was with great pleasure that I had the chance to talk to one of the co-founders of the Think Free organization very recently, Robert Scott Christie. Now, that interview is still being edited, so it will appear on the website shortly. But in the meantime, I'd like to listen to an excerpt from that interview where we expand on the theme touched on in Bursting Bubbles of Government Deception of government agencies and other so-called authorities attempting to wield power over us with words. And I put it to Robert Scott Christie that if they can weave circles around us with these words like registration and application and submission and all the legalese surrounding the various types of alloidal titles and other things that most people have absolutely no conception of, then our understanding of words and our understanding of how they are put to use could be used as a type of reverse weapon or a way to fight back against the enslavement of our own minds by these people who obviously exert no scruples in their wielding of these very powerful words. I asked Robert Scott Christie if it is essentially possible to beat the system at its own game. Um, yeah, essentially it's, it's like a game, essentially, right? And you're either being played or you're playing the game. And so if you don't read the rules, which most people don't, you know, most people don't really read the rules and they don't understand the rules, especially if there's a, you know, there's a book that goes along with the rules that says this is what all the words in the rules mean. So, um, so yeah, essentially, you know, to, to learn what the words mean and to learn to learn, which I guess, which would go into what we're also working on now, which is the ability to think, which, I mean, I, you know, like I never, I never got that. I wasn't, I mean, I, I retained as much of it as I could because I didn't subject myself and I, to public education as much as they wanted me to be. But, you know, like once you start to, to read about critical thinking and you start to read about how to learn and, and what's, what it actually means, and you realize that, you know, we've all been deprived and people talk about not having a choice and you realize we don't have a choice when you've been programmed to do, to respond 
you know, to the to the reward, you don't have a choice anymore. So it's, you know, you have to recognize that first, which goes, you know, like one of my favorite analogies of, of who we are and how we are is the, the prisoner and the slave analogy. So there's, you know, like we're there, you're either a prisoner and a slave or a slave, the slaves hope for a better master, prisoners know they're in prison and they are hoping they can get out. And so they're looking for other prisoners to say, hey, you know, we're in prison, let's get out of here in order to be free. And then <clears throat> the slaves are all trying to keep the other slaves down and, and the prisoners especially because when they find a prisoner, they're like, hey, hey, this guy's trying to rock the boat. So, you know, once we recognize these things about ourselves, because you have to really be honest about it with yourself because... You know, like that's the whole, the, the key to, to all this stuff is really knowing who you are. And unless you, you know, face the fact that you're a slave or that you're a prisoner or, you know, that you've been dumbed down, that you've gone through this public education, that, you know, the, the PhD and all that stuff doesn't mean that you're the smartest guy on earth, doesn't mean that you've been, you've, you've somehow missed all the subjugation and all the crap that's been put on everybody else. We've all been subject to it. It goes right up to the very top. I mean, unless you're in that, and even in the top 1%, I'm sure they've been subjected to a lot of their own brainwashing and conditioning and whatever, probably how they can do what they do. But, you know, so nobody's, in my opinion, nobody's, nobody's escaped all the conditioning stuff. So the big thing is, is just to recognize that you didn't escape it. And then, and then sort of, and then where to go from there is just to start, you know, learning for yourself and, 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 and accepting some things that you thought are, you know, you think are crazy and they couldn't be, you know, maybe accept them and look into them a little bit and, and see, you know, hey, maybe, maybe they're not so crazy, <laughs> you know. Once again, Robert Scott Christie, one of the co-founders of Think Free at thinkfree.ca and just one of a growing movement of people around the world who are waking up to the ways in which we are being put into servitude in direct violation of our natural, inalienable, inherent rights as human beings to exert full control and ownership over our own property. As always, we have only managed to begin scratching the surface of this information, and I'm sure that for those out there who are interested in learning more, this episode has helped to whet your appetite, and the documentation list will help you to dig into the main course and start devouring this information for yourself so that you can come to your own decisions and find your own way through this information. But for today, I'd like to leave the final words to Michael Bednarik from that lecture presented in episode 21 of the 9-11 Synchronicity podcast. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me again and asking you to join me next week for episode 162 of the Corbett Report podcast, Remembering Aaron Russo. Freedom is not free. It's not easy. And as we are learning, freedom isn't for everybody. And I understand if you don't want to spend the time and the hassle and you don't want to be arguing with police officers on the side of the road, have a driver's license, get your license plate, keep everything up to date. Not everybody, you know, is prepared or ready to go through that kind of hassle. Because it is. The government is going to make your life as miserable as they possibly can because you are not following the system, and that's what they want. 
They want you to follow the system. Because that way they can control you and put you where they want you. That's not freedom. Freedom is not free. Freedom is not free. It is a lot of work. Bye.